Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. Let's get right into the headlines. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has quietly shuttered the state's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Relatives Task Force, according to a new investigation from reporter Bella Davis at New Mexico In Depth. The task force has not met since May, and the shutdown comes a few months after the governor appointed former San Ildefonso Pueblo Governor James Mountain to lead the state Indian Affairs Department. Members of the now-defunct task force protested the appointment at the time over rape charges against Mountain from 15 years ago. The charge was later dismissed, though it was not clear why because the filing is sealed. Two members said they had considered resigning unless Lujan Grisham withdrew the nomination. When asked by Davis whether the opposition to Mountain was a factor in ending the task force, Lujan Grisham's press secretary did not respond. The governor's office said only that the group had achieved its objectives as spelled out in an executive order that expired in summer 2022, but it failed to explain why the administration continued to fund and convene the group for a year after it had achieved its objectives. Darlene Gomez, a member of the task force and an attorney who's represented over 20 impacted families, told Davis that she learned the task force was ending at a summit that the Indian Affairs Department hosted in June. Gomez told department staff they should make a public announcement because its members and New Mexicans deserve to know. That never happened. Now, she and other task force members and advocates worry the issue won't get the attention they say it still deserves. Democratic State Senator Linda Lopez of Albuquerque says the group is still needed. She says some of the task force members are continuing to meet and work on their own, but that it isn't the same as a governor-endorsed task force charged with making change. Relatives of three people killed in last summer's flash flood over scorched lands in northern New Mexico are suing the U.S. Forest Service. The wrongful death lawsuit accuses the agency of negligence in managing the prescribed burn that caused the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire, the burn scar the blaze left behind, and failing to prevent the subsequent flooding that killed Betty Lou Greenhall, Linda Cummings, and Jimmy Cummings at their family cabin near Las Vegas, New Mexico. The lawsuit also accuses the agency of providing poor warnings about wildfire dangers and flash floods. An attorney for the family says the three wouldn't have traveled there if they had been properly informed of the dangers. The Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire ignited in April 2022 and is the largest wildfire in state history. It burned more than 314,000 acres and destroyed over 900 structures. As educators assess the first half of the new school semester during parent-teacher conferences, this week on the podcast we're turning our attention to education. We begin with an exclusive one-on-one -on -one discussion with Public Education Secretary Dr. Arsenio Romero. Last month, Attorney General Raul Torres came on our show to explain his interest in taking over litigation for the state in the Yazzie Martinez case, which mandated educational equity across New Mexico. So I asked Secretary Romero about PED's position on the Attorney General's desire to step in and what progress his department has made to create a more equitable learning environment for all students in our state. New Mexico Public Education Secretary, Dr. Arsenio Romero. Thank you so much for joining me here on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you, Lou. Thank you for having me this, uh, here this morning. It's a beautiful morning and uh, I'm really happy to be here. Great. Uh, now, in New Mexico In-Depth's Trip Jennings interviewed Attorney General Raul Torres in these same chairs two weeks ago. Torres told him in his words that it's clear that not enough progress has been made in the state's response to the Yazi Martinez ruling. And he added that it's, quote, very far from meeting its constitutional obligations to educate all students. How would you respond to that assessment? 
You know, that's an interesting statement because one, we have made tremendous progress. And I wanna talk a little bit about some of the things that we've done. Uh, but at the same time, we have a long ways to go. And I acknowledge that there's a lot of work to be done. But when we think about what's happening in New Mexico over the last uh, year or so, it's really unprecedented uh, across the nation. We're doing things in New Mexico that no other state is doing. We really take this concept of cradle to career. Um, these are things that are giving students opportunities, children across New Mexico that they've never had before. So for example, we are a state where no matter where you're at in the state of New Mexico, whether you're right here in the metro area or you're in Animus, New Mexico, you have the ability to be able to have uh, uh, access to preschool education, to be able to get access to educators, to be able to learn those pre-reading skills to make you that much more successful once you get into K-12. And then let me go to the other side of things. We're the state in the nation that allows for every resident in New Mexico to go to college for free. This is huge for us as a state. And then let's talk about K-12 education. We have been investing greatly in the opportunities for students to uh, have access to highly qualified teachers. Those teachers are being trained right now in the science of reading, which we're already seeing uh, tremendous results in. Sure, and we can talk about more of those specifics in general, but back to the, the impact on the, the state's response to Yazzie Martinez specifically and the Attorney General's posture on it. The Attorney General told us that he wants to take over litigation in the case um, to speed up progress in his words. What is the administration and PED's uh, response to that idea? So when we think about the Attorney General, you know, these are our lawyers and, these, and what his job is to be able to litigate cases. And I want to be able to support him. I want to be able to, for us to be in a partnership with each other. I'm an educator. I've been doing this for close to 28 years. When I think about all the teachers, the principals, the superintendents across the state, that's what they do. They educate students. And so uh, I, there's been this new term that I've been using lately is really education is calling. And what that means is that we all have a responsibility in educating students across New Mexico. That includes myself as a secretary of education, but it also includes parents and students, uh, citizens across New Mexico. There's even a part for the attorney general to be a part of that. Uh, I haven't been able to talk to the Attorney General about this yet. We haven't, he hasn't reached out to us yet. I'd love to be able to have that conversation with him to see how we can partner together to make this happen for the students across New Mexico. If he doesn't reach out and he still tries to take over this case, would you support that decision? Would the administration fight him on that and try to retain control? You know, it, it's not so much of, uh, for me, a, a question of whether he takes over the case or not. I believe that the lawyers are gonna to continue to litigate this. This is what they do. And uh, what worries me about that though is that uh, dollars are going to litigating this case. And many of those dollars could be going into the classroom. And so I think that's another question we have to ask is, do we wanna spend years litigating this case so that, and these dollars are going towards uh, lawyers to be able to uh, prosecute this case? Or do we want those dollars to go into New Mexico classrooms? Myself, I want them to go into New Mexico classrooms. Now, we can stay talking about the, the legal aspect of this just for one second. I wanted to ask about the state and your department's posture towards the t case in court. Um, in March of 2020, right. the state filed a motion to dismiss the case, um, arguing that it had reached compliance because it had created, in its mind, a fundamentally different public education system for those at-risk students mentioned in the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit. It also argued that actual student outcomes were irrelevant to compliance. Is your department's primary objective to reach the leg legal definition of compliance, or is it to facilitate systemic changes that create an equitable working environment for all students? 
You know, um, throughout my career, I've tried to go into the places that need me the most. I've gone into some very um, needy classrooms and districts uh, where students are requiring uh, more opportunity, more resources, more support. And in every one of those places, I've been able to be successful. And it's not just me, it's, it's the teachers, it's the, it's the community around me. I don't see this as being any different. So uh, absolutely, I agree that we have uh, some work to do in New Mexico to be able to provide better outcomes for students across New Mexico. And that work will really never end. Uh, so with that, I take on this challenge. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I don't argue that uh, there is a need for this because I know there is. When we think about students that are native, when we think about students with special education, uh, come from low-income homes, uh, bilingual students, they need more supports. I do want to thank our legislature and our governor. They've been able to uh, provide record-breaking investments into education, over a billion dollars uh, over this last year to be able to do that. We're on the right path. Uh, when we think about other states that have done some of this work, I know that you know sometimes what comes up is Mississippi, and we call it the Mississippi miracle. It wasn't a miracle though. They were very strategic in what they did. Uh, they also knew that there was a timeline to that. It took them over 10 years to be able to get to where they're at now. Uh, I would argue that we are doing the same work and more, and we're doing it on a faster timeline. So I'm really excited with the work that's happening across New Mexico. I'm very proud of our classroom teachers, uh, proud of our principals across the state, and of course our superintendents and school boards. We're all doing this work together. I'd love to be able to have the Attorney General come in with us and be a part of that team. Last question on that motion to dismiss back in 2020. That was three and a half years ago before you were secretary. But what is now the administration's position on the case? Does it still belong in the courtroom? It belongs uh, in, a, in a space where we're going to continue to make improvements. Now, the question of whether it belongs in the courtroom, I have to leave that up to, to the judges. I have to leave that up to the lawyers to be able to litigate this case. What I know is, is that we're going to continue to move forward to be able to educate students in the best possible way, uh, to provide better outcomes, to be provide more opportunity. That's the job I took when I first started you know, teaching 28 years ago. That's the same, same responsibility I have today as the Secretary of Education. Now, the court identified three key areas that were lacking and therefore contributed in the court's mind to inequities among students. The first, basic materials, textbooks, technology, things like that. Uh, second, curriculum, meaning programs and services that meet the needs of all students. And third, experienced and well-trained teachers. Where is PED from your perspective in terms of meeting the court's findings in those three specific areas? All right, you're going to have to help me with those three. I want to make sure I, uh, I talked about all of them. So the first one is around uh, uh, technology and, uh, resources, and, yep. and resources. So over the last few years, uh, there has been uh, a record uh, investment in technology across New Mexico. So you can go into any classroom in New Mexico and you're going to see students have access to laptops and technology. Uh, we've been able to really uh, provide uh, stable internet access in so many parts of New Mexico. We're not there yet, but we are in a whole different place than we were before the pandemic. Uh, when we think about the partnerships we have in building technology and connecting our traditional core classrooms to technology, um, it's never happened before. Uh, our students are being able to leave us uh, with skills that I never had as a graduate when I left school. So they're, they're in a good place for that. The second was around curriculum. Yes. And so we are, uh, has, have really invested and researched around what is the best type of curriculum that's going to be available for our students. And it's really this research-based curriculum that and ensures that students are having uh, the best uh, possible tools and resources for that. For example, the science of reading. 
uh, we have been able to uh, really go in and uh, dive deep in how students learn how to read. We've been able to look at the national research. We've been able to visit uh, campuses across the, uh, the country. And we have uh, definitely seen a proven method for how this happens. From when students come in as uh, two, three, four-year-olds, come in as kindergartners, first, second, third graders. And uh, we are implementing that now. And the last is? Teachers. Teachers. Uh, we are, uh, we've made some tremendous gains in making sure that every classroom has uh, highly qualified teachers in New Mexico. I've been able to talk to uh, dozens of uh, HR uh, offices across New Mexico and districts, and uh, anecdotally, what they've been able to tell me is that they've been able to fill positions uh, in the last, uh, let's last year, that they haven't been able to do for the last 10 years. And so really proud of that work. But we're also really investing in the pipelines for teachers. Keeping those things in mind, is the state in your mind in compliance with the Yazzie Martinez ruling now? It's, it's an interesting question because I mean, sometimes when we talk about that, it's like check boxes. But it, that's, it's not as simple as that. It's going to be work that we always have to do. Uh, when we have a, a, our new uh, five-year-olds that come in as kindergartners, we have to be able to really design program around them. And as they become first graders, second graders, third graders, into middle school, into high school, we're always thinking about what are our kindergartners now today doing and what are they going to need as they are in high school as, or as graduates. The answer is never the same. So it's a lot more complicated than just checking boxes to say whether we accomplish something or not. We always have to be evolving. And when I think back about what teaching was like when I first started, it is very different now. When I was a principal first starting out, it's very much different to being a principal today. Same thing with being a superintendent. So uh, that, that answer to that question is going to be different every time you ask me. Have there been enough systemic changes, maybe I can phrase it a little differently, that will allow districts and teachers to adjust and improvise with those students now and give them that equitable education that is mandated in the court ruling. Absolutely. I mean, we together, we have been really investing in this and really trying to evolve and adapt through dollars, the resources. So just, you know, a couple of those ideas around, you know, this is a time where we there's more time that students are able to spend with teachers than ever before. Uh, I want to thank the legislator for really increasing uh, instructional time. Uh, we, we've done this through programs like K3+, K5+, K12+. Uh, this last year with House Bill 130, we were able to increase the school day and hour and week. Um, these, are, these are investments that are going to pay off. Uh, nobody ever argues that more time with a teacher is a bad thing. That's a good thing, and we're starting to see those things really uh, have uh, an impactful outcome. I want to talk about something that you mentioned just a little while ago and something that we've heard from people interested in this case, the need for more Native American teachers right. so that indigenous students can see someone and learn from someone who they identify with. Um, do you agree that is an important variable in education equity? Absolutely. It is so important when a student comes into a classroom, they see people that look like them, talk like them, uh, have a background like them, have a history like them. And in that program like Educator Fellows, one of the things that I noticed over time is that uh, if I go back you know, 15 years ago and I, had, I was a school principal and I had a second grade open, I probably had about 30 applicants, 50 applicants for that job. Uh, over the last five years, it's turned out to be, I would be lucky if I had one. But now we're starting to turn the tide where, uh, where I'm getting reports back from HR offices is that we're starting to see five, six, 10 applicants for a job. But the other thing I had to really adjust to is that even when I hired a teacher, um, those teachers, it, 
were hopefully going to stay with us for 15, 20, 25 years. And that kind of changed. It was a little bit of a mind shift where I had to realize, like, teachers may only stay with me for three to five years. But what we're finding in programs uh, like Educator Fellows and some of the other pipeline programs is that we're going into those communities and we're able to actually work with people that live there. And they want to invest their whole career in the communities they live in. So now we're starting to see back again those conversations where these people are going to be with us for 15, 20, 30 years, which is, which is amazing. The PED website has an entire page dedicated to its response to the Yazza Martinez lawsuit. But when you click on what's labeled as the timeline, since the orders, there's nothing listed past 2020. Does your department have a concrete response timeline with specific goals? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the public education department did a lot of work to be able to create a plan around, uh, you know, supporting the requirements of Martinez Yazzie. Uh, when we, when I look at that now, we're talking about over 75% of our students actually fall under the the, the student um, groups that the Martinez Yazzie plan, um, lawsuit talks about. To me, that's everybody. So it, as I move forward, I want to be able to improve outcomes, uh, opportunities, educational environments for every student in New Mexico. So we are, we are currently updating our strategic plan, which fits right into what the Martinez Yazi lawsuit is, is really requiring of us. But we're looking at it from a different lens. We're not doing this because uh, the lawsuit says we have to do this. We're doing this because it's what's right for all students across New Mexico, all families across New Mexico. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you soon. We're at the tail end of, of really these, uh, of putting everything together. And it's really gonna be able to allow us to be able to align, not only at the public education department, but all schools, all charters across New Mexico, we see the, uh, the path forward together. When will that new delineated plan be available to the public? soon in the fall I, I, I'd love to give you an exact date um, but it's 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 yeah within the next few weeks or months months or so okay uh, now when was the last time that the state's legal team met with the Yazi Martinez plaintiffs and what happened in that meeting I'm not so the, that that's not my end of things you know that that is definitely something for uh, the lawyers to continue to litigate and work through uh, my job is to make sure that we continue to educate students, give them uh, the, the best possible, uh, you know, environments possible for learning. Um, I get to, uh, I, I try to, you know, keep up with that as much as I can, but that's not where I want to spend my energy. They're going to continue to litigate. I'm going to continue to educate. Now, respectfully, the lawyers do work for you, though. As secretary of the department, do you have any strategic meetings with them? Or is sure, that... Sure, sure. Yeah, we, we, we update each other on, on, a, on a regular basis. Um, and so through that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's me uh, really keeping, uh, you know, informing them of some of the work that we're doing, some of the data that we have, um, and making sure that we continue to talk about outcomes that are happening, things that we're, you know, that we're still struggling through to be able to get into place. Um, so it's a backward, you know, back and forth conversation we have with, we have with each other. Absolutely. Okay. Um, how do you view your department's obligation to be transparent with the public, not just with the timeline, right. um, not just with accomplishments, but with the response plan and the work that is actively being done? Absolutely. I, I would say that's probably one of the main pillars I have, and it's part of the responsibility. I want to make sure that we, we uh, uh, are able to be transparent with every family across New Mexico. And so uh, you've already started to be able to see some of that transparency happening as we are really updating all of our uh, software, our data, and our reporting 
uh, across, across the agency. We want to make sure that it's easy for parents to be able to see what's going on in their child's school, uh, to be able to look at the data uh, when it comes to the district, the school, and, in, and their individual child, and then be able to help them uh, support and asking questions so they can have, build a relationship with, with their child's school uh, to be able to uh, talk about what's happening there. Uh, we've been able to roll out Vistas. Uh, this is our, our new software system and data reporting system that we have. Um, and uh, it's going to continue to evolve. It's, it's a brand new uh, you know, environment, and we're making improvements on it every single day. And in fact, this week is the 40th day of school. It's amazing, like already a fourth of, this, of the school year has already gone by. So we're today, this week is actually a big reporting uh, week where we're able to look at uh, so many different points of data that will allow us to be able to make decisions about what we do with the next quarter and, then, and the rest of the school year. Thank you, Public Education Secretary, awesome. Dr. Arsenio Romero. Thanks so much. Lou, thank you so much for having me here today. And uh, I, I'd love to be able to come back. We'll keep talking about updates in public education. Absolutely, happy to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks to State Public Education Secretary, Dr. Arsenio Romero, for that interview. Classrooms across New Mexico are seeing more and more empty desks, and the recent drop in enrollment isn't the only reason. Chronic absenteeism has long persisted throughout the state, and education officials have introduced new initiatives to stamp out the growing concern. KUNM's Megan Kamrick hosts a special roundtable to discuss those plans and asks how state education leaders can address new problems that have popped up since the pandemic. Thanks, Lou. Joining me around the table are Leslie Kelly, the Behavioral Health Coordinator at the State Public Education Department, Carrie Wimborn from United Way of North Central New Mexico, and Juvenile Probation Supervisor Esteban Gallegos from CYFD. Thank you for being here. Starting broad on this topic, Leslie, what is chronic absenteeism and how is that different than when a student misses a few days of school? Thanks for the question, Megan. So chronic absenteeism is when students miss five or more days of school. Um, and it's different because all the research backs up that when students miss more than five days of school, they're less likely to graduate from high school, whether it's excused absence or unexcused absence. And Esteban, what happens to kids who repeatedly don't show up to school? And how do the impacts stretch beyond just them and their families into communities? Well, ultimately, I think there's a belief that if kids aren't in school, what are they what are they getting involved in? And, you know, a lot of times that is delinquent activity. That could be, you know, substance abuse, trying to find that belonging, if you will. Ultimately, when the public or excuse me, when the schools send the case to juvenile probation, um, we have a role to try and support and intervene and try to identify what those barriers are. And Terry, are there communities or portions of the student population that have struggled more than others with this? Oh, absolutely. Um, PED actually has a, a, a dashboard that talks about um, the data. And what we're seeing is that students who are um, housing insecure or unhoused, uh, students with disabilities, students experiencing poverty, um, and some students of color are suffering more and, and having more absences than, than other students. Oh, Terry, let's stay with you. What is New Mexico's history with chronic absenteeism and how has the state previously tried to address the issue? So initially the state was using the Compulsory School Act, which pretty much said you have to have your child in school, but only focused on truancy. Truancy is unexcused absences. With the advent of the Attendance for Success Act, which was passed in 2019, the state moved over to looking at chronic absenteeism. Basically that's saying excused, unexcused, and suspensions, the child is out of school. 
the child is going to miss and the child will eventually fall behind. So now we're focusing on how can we partner with families and do more to address the issues and the barriers um, that keep children from coming to school. So less punitive, more finding out what's going on. Much more less punitive. We're not looking at punishing parents. And, we, and I'll tell you this, I don't believe there's a parent in this state that doesn't care about their child's education, but I do believe there are parents who are overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. I think there are parents who, you know, they're, they're living in poverty or they have three jobs or there are so many other things going on in their lives that are first, that, that attendance does not reach the top of the list. And those are the parents that the school wants to partner with, talk with, how can we solve those barriers? And Leslie, PED is doing things differently now. What wasn't working before? What's an example of the department's new approach? Well, with the Attendance for Success Act, it's really taking a completely different view of it's not punitive. I mean, you're, to suspend a kid for not being in school makes zero sense, and those kinds of things happened. Um, is that we are partnering with national partners. Um, we, for the, for the 24 legislative session, um, we asked for $17 million to support this so that we could have staff in schools supporting attendance. We ended up with $5 million. And so with those funds, um, we're doing, um, we're kicking off a media, a statewide media campaign, but also we're, we're looking at the seven largest districts and providing funds for them so that they can partner with PED, United Way, our national partners, and look at best practices and evidence-based interventions to in, get kids back in school. And that's like Terry said, it's not just focusing on the student, it's looking at the community, it's bringing in parents, it's if the school is unable to do it, a partner, one of our partners can come in if the, if the family's more comfortable with that. Um, so we are really looking at root causes and barriers rather than just blaming families or assuming kids don't wanna be there. Um, what, what prompted that shift? Well, I think the pandemic was huge and a lot of prompts. Although this um, was passed before the pandemic, right? right? And mm -hmm. so it, it passed right before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't a, a, there wasn't a lot to be done because there wasn't a lot of funding, to be honest with you. But seeing what happened and losing so many students during, that pande during the pandemic, um, we did partner with um, Engage New Mexico and they helped us recover some of those students, but it just, that engagement piece is so important. Um, looking at the other, um, like Estevan started to talk about like dropout prevention, attendance is completely connected with dropout prevention, focusing on eighth and ninth grade transitions because that's when we lose a lot of students. So I think that, um, you know, seeing what disengagement from school did, um, we, it just supported our goals of really re-engaging and, and the importance of engagement. Mm -hmm. And what do the numbers look like now? I mean, have the changes worked? There has been an improvement. Mm -hmm. It's incremental. It's not going to change overnight, but we have seen there is improvement from, uh, you know, the pandemic to now. And we have goals to improve every single year, and we're pretty certain that that can happen. Some of the work that's being done in individual districts, they've already seen gains in, great gains in attendance, reduction in suspensions um, and expulsions, um, and so, and retaining our ninth graders is what we really want to do, so. Mm -hmm. And are private schools also worried about absenteeism? Are they doing anything different in terms of engagement or discipline? I, I'm not aware of that, and maybe Terry can speak to that, but I'm, I'm not aware of private schools um, mm -hmm. needing to partner with us in this way. Um, 
Well, the, so, so the attendance for success at does cover private schools. Okay. And it does require um, private mm -hmm. schools, charter schools, public schools, all to adhere to um, the law. I will tell you, so United Way has been working um, on attendance since 2015. And we've been offering conferences um, for school-based attendance teams since 2017. In 2020, we started partnering with the Public Education Department on these conferences and went statewide. And what we do is we offer to um, school-based attendance teams the opportunity to learn more, to get professional development, to figure out what needs to happen. And we have private schools, public schools, and charter schools all attend these conferences this past September. Our conference had 400 attendees from around the state. And we know that, that this work is extremely important. And our group, United Way, facilitates um, a group made up of interested community members who want to make sure that attendance um, succeeds in this state. I imagine that's helpful for people to just share our best practices. Oh, this absolutely. is what works for us. And in fact, that's what schools asked us early on. Please, can I don't. I don't care what happens in Baltimore or what works in Baltimore, what, what works in New Mexico. And so we've been really lucky that I've seen wonderful things happening in this state. Schools are doing fabulous things and so we ask them come and present to other schools and they do. And it's just phenomenal. Can I just ask you real quick, Terry, you mentioned this just before we started taping. You had a great example of how school worked with parents whose kids were just perpetually late. I did. Um, so there was a school, it's an APS elementary school, and the parents were very young, and they, the boys were going to bed very, very late because the parents really didn't understand um, about s sleep needs for children. And the, uh, the school brought them in and just had a conversation with them. They weren't judgmental. They simply said to them, hey, you may not know this, but um, children that age actually need about nine hours of sleep a night. That might be why you can't get them up in the morning. And so they talked out with the parents. What are some options? What can we do? And the parents were so grateful. And they came up with some interventions and some incentives for the boys. And then the boys were getting to school on time and every day, all it took was that conversation with parents. And that's what the Attendance for Success Act is about. We want to partner with you as parents. We want to talk with you. We want to remove those barriers together. Um, as you mentioned, in 2019, the governor signed the Attendance for Success Act, Bill 236. It created new data collection methods. It's meant to prevent absences and provide early intervention and specialized support systems. Estevan, what changes did that new law mandate, particularly from the juvenile probation perspective? So one of the significant changes that it required was that the interventions that are attempted by the schools now need to be documented and sent as part of the packet that goes to juvenile probation. Once we get the referral, that gives us a little bit more of an understanding what's been tried already, what, ha what maybe hasn't been considered. Um, ultimately, juvenile probation's role when it comes to these types of referrals is for us to do, uh, to quote the statute, to do an investigation to determine whether the child is considered to be a neglected child or a child considered in a family in need of services. And again, that, that's the role that we take and that's why we need all of that information, uh, not just simply how many days they've missed, we need what's been tried. What has the family's responses been to the phone calls, to the meetings that have been set up? Have there been referrals to community-based services? Um, you know, Different, different agencies that, that, that have helped in. What is their response been? So that gives us a better understanding of how to proceed with that case. Mm -hmm. Gives you some context, what's Absolutely. going on. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and Terry, the COVID pandemic hit less than a year <laughs> after the law went into effect. How did that alter the trajectory of what state 
and private entities were trying to do with attendance? Well, initially, the, 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 the law passed, and it was supposed to take effect that next July, and then we were in the middle of a pandemic, and um, the public education department was, was relatively open with school districts and said, you all determine what constitutes an absence, whether they're doing it online or what we call asynchronously doing it on their own. And so unfortunately, what that meant that every district was determining on their own what an absence was. Mm -hmm. So that data um, coming to us, and we can't do comparisons then. Now that we're all back to school, we are seeing, and this is, this is Terry's soapbox, sorry. Um, there are four big reasons why students don't come to school. The first one is barriers, so illness, um, homelessness, transportation. The second one is aversion. They don't want to come to school. They've had a bad experience. They've fallen so far behind they don't understand. They're being bullied, things like that. The third one is they don't want to come to school, disinterest. Mm -hmm. you know. And we find after COVID that that actually is a big reason. Kids are like, I was online for three hours a day. Why do I have to be in school for seven now? And also um, a big part of um, not being interested is students need project-based learning. They need hands-on learning. They need a reason to be there or they need an adult at the school who shows that they care about them. And they, if they're not seeing that, then that's not happening. And the last reason is misconceptions. And that's what this whole statewide mm -hmm. attendance campaign is about. Leslie, according to an Associated Press analysis that was published in August, many states around the nation have struggled with school attendance in recent years. New Mexico was among the worst, with a rate of about 40% for 2021-2022. Are there warning signs or indicators that a student is at more risk to regularly miss school? Definitely, and that's one of the... Um one of the outreach efforts that we're working in coordination with United Way and our, our national partners is looking at how do we help schools and districts set up early warning systems so that these, these known indicators will trigger something and we can intervene before all the absences start to happen. And there are a lot of the things that Terry talked about. Transportation is a huge one. Food insecurity, housing insecurity are huge. Um, parents having different work hours than what we consider traditional work time. Um, and then the other thing is, is that, which is a huge part of our work in our bureau, um, is really supporting and helping schools create a safe and inviting and engaging environment via social emotional learning and interventions that look like that so that that it goes hand in hand with our attendance efforts. If student feels safe, has a connection with people, whether it be adults and kids at school, they're more likely to go. Mm -hmm. So um, those things work in concert. And also, according to same Associated Press story, New Mexico had an had 18% of students with chronic absenteeism before the pandemic and was in the middle of the pack across the U.S. After the pandemic, New Mexico more than doubled its absentee numbers as the state became the third highest in the nation with 40% of students with chronic absenteeism. We haven't quite bounced back to where we were, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're getting better, yeah. we're okay. getting better. And with the, Terry mentioned the discipline dashboard, which is, um, you know, our efforts to be transparent for people to see, you know, where they are as a district, where they are as a school in, comp in comparison to other places in New Mexico. But I think um, one thing that we saw that was really um, 
really helped us launch some of these efforts was we lost so many kids during the pandemic and we partnered with folks that helped the districts go up, helped the school districts, helped the state go find these kids. And we brought a lot of kids back into school and re-engaged them. And so now the, the focus is how do we keep them here? How do we have regular attendance? Um, and really, really stressing that it doesn't matter if it's excused or whatever reason, it's an absence is an absence. And the research shows that once you start missing more than five days of school, the, the likelihood of you graduating decreases significantly. I, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I, I recall that. I recall that, that CYFD was actually part of, of that partnership in trying to reach out to many of these kids. So we had probation officers making phone calls to kids and families, even going out to the house to, I think it was to refer them to Engage mm -hmm. New Mexico mm -hmm. at the time to ultimately track them down, if you will, where are they at? So I do recall that initiative in our department being was part of it. Was that at all problematic with the families? You have a probation officer coming. You know, we, we, we prepared them as much as we could ahead of time. You know, we weren't there to, for punitive measures. We were associating, we, we were partnering with the public education department to ultimately um, provide them information with where the kid was at, what their goals were in terms of trying to get back into school or, you know, some of them are actually even over 18, I believe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, are, are you pursuing a GED? Or okay. Do you need assistance mm -hmm. getting back? And I think that was the whole initiative behind referring them to engage New Mexico. Um, let's go around the table real quick. We'll start with you, Terry. Okay. Is there a big idea or solution to this problem that New Mexico hasn't tried yet that we could look at? Well, I think we're, we're there. I, okay. I think that, that with the passage of the law and the implementation of the law, we are there. It's just that it's a change in mindset. We are not punishing parents anymore. We're, we're not of the belief that they need to go before a judge. We are switching the way we think to relationship building. I like the community school model where we're talking about the school being the hub of the neighborhood where parents feel comfortable coming, talking to people, and it's that relationship building I think that's going to make a huge difference as we move forward. Leslie, what do you think? Well, I think that we're really using, I know we're using evidence-based practices and interventions that have worked other places, modeled you know, out of Johns Hopkins. And with our partners, statewide and local partners, we're able to not just put all the onus on the school and expect their, like, well, if a parent or a family does not have a good relationship with the school for whatever reason, it allows them to have the access to the supports via another, another community provider. So um, I think we're gonna see, I know we're gonna see some big changes. Um, and also, you know, when you ask for $17 million and you get five, it, we, we are only able to really focus, um, do focus work with these se the seven largest districts in the state right now. And our hope is, is that we'll get more funding so that we can work with every district around the state. I've heard the state might have some extra change in the couch cushions this <laughs> session coming up. Are you going to seek more? Um, I think that's the plan. I'm not 100% <laughs> sure. I hope we do. Um, so yeah, because it's, it will make a difference. And Stefan. Being able to network, that, that's ultimately one of the things that we've been strong proponents of. So I'm, I'm lucky enough to chair a subcommittee in Valencia County, one of the counties that I, that I supervise. And I want to say back in 2015, 2016, that this subcommittee back then was just strictly, we, we were based off of the compulsory school attendance law. So we talked about what were our roles. In my opinion, it was a lot more black and white back then. Um, adapting to the Attendance for Success Act that we actually renamed our subcommittee, the Attendance for Success Subcommittee, mm -hmm. <laughs> just to draw that. And that's actually a drawback from our Juvenile Justice Board. Terry is, in fact, one of our, our um, recurring members and, and greatly appreciate her. But gathering together, we talked about best practices and sharing that. So we have representatives from each of the school districts that are in our um, 
in our district or in our county, if you will. We've held attendance conferences as well. I know I know Terry talked about the statewide. We've had local ones for Valencia County for professionals to again advise of what the law indicates, what juvenile probation's role can be, what resources are available. Just about a month ago, we had one at the Belen Consolidated School District at Belen High School for kids and families, specifically to provide them those resources that are about, it's kind of like a health fair, if you will. Um, lastly, one of the things I've always been a strong component, of, and I think everybody would agree that, unfortunately, in some situations, peers have more influence on kids than parents, than, than law enforcement, than probation officers, than whoever. Why does that always have to be a bad thing? Is there ever a situation where we can use those peers that want to pursue potentially a career in education or social work or something like that to have that type of influence with the youth? And yes, this is why school attendance, this is why education is important. I've always wanted to tap into that to see if we could use those peer influences because again, in my opinion, and I've seen I've been doing this for a long time, Peers have stronger influences on youth than, than usually than adults do. Can we tap into that in a positive way? Well, Terry Wimborn, Esteban Gallegos, Leslie Kelly, thank you for having this conversation with me. Absolutely, my pleasure. Absolutely. While thinking about an episode centered around education, we knew that the student experience had to be addressed. From the social anxiety of coming back from the COVID pandemic to the stress that comes with the growing threat of school violence, kids are dealing with a lot in 2023. So we decided to talk to school counselors who listen to these concerns every day. Executive producer Jeff Proctor asks Brian Gabaldon, a counselor at Highland High School, and Devin Shelton from Alameda Elementary School what they're seeing from students they work with and how adults can better help our young people adjust mentally and emotionally. Brian, Devin, thank you for joining me on New Mexico in Focus this week. Thank you. Thanks for having us. As we just heard, you both work as counselors in Albuquerque Public Schools, which gives you both unique insight into how students are doing um, in a different way even than teachers interact with students in the classroom. I'm not a parent, but I am close with a lot of middle and high school age kids, um, and they have described over the course of the past few years some real difficulties that they have faced. Um, so Brian, I would like to start with you with the big question. Are the kids all right? Are the kids all right? That's a big question, like you said. For the most part, we're trying to get them to that space, but in all honesty, many of them are not. They're struggling, many of them. A, a large major majority of them are. Can yeah. you describe sort of the patterns or the themes that you're seeing in that struggle? What, what has sort of underpinned the struggle that you're seeing? Well, I think since the pandemic, we've seen an increase in problems with absenteeism and um, a lot more um, substance abuse in the school. Um, students just have a rough time getting to school in general a lot of the time. And uh, if they had struggles before the pandemic, we've seen the struggles increase. So. Um, we're also seeing academic deficiencies as a result. So combined, we're just seeing a hodgepodge of, of large stuff they have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, issues, big issues. Devin, I know you work at a smaller school as a counselor. What are some of the things, that, the unique challenges that you've seen with some of the students who come to you for help? Well, I'm at an elementary level, so there's sometimes with the younger students, there's an undercurrent of hope even because they are younger and they have a lot of time to make things up and, and persevere. But 
since the pandemic, I've noticed a lot of social challenges, interacting with their peers in a way that's healthy, um, academic challenges for sure, which impact how they interact with their peers and how they are at school. Um, so yes, I think the big question, the kids can be all right, but we need to all work together and we are. I think educators, community, families, we all need to come together to kind of push them up towards all right. But right now we have many struggling kids. So isolation is obviously a part of this. Um, students who were required to learn through a screen and instead of um, the face-to-face -face interaction that happens in the classroom, what has the transition back to in-person learning been like and has that presented its own sort of unique challenges? I think for the elementary level in particular, um, we're seeing kind of pockets of struggle, especially if they missed earlier years, pre-K, kinder, first, second, because that's where a lot of learning how to be in school takes place on top of academic learning. So I think that's been a struggle and there's some nervousness, anxiety feeling from students, not all, but it, we see it in how they interact with their peers, but also maybe want to escape the academic learning because they're mm -hmm. feeling overwhelmed. Um, but that's where we come in. That's where counselors come in, great educators come in. We kind of reteach those skills and build them back up. But I do see it with those, those younger kids as they move up that there was a deficit when they were behind the screen or not able to interact on playground or preschool or any place like that. Brian, that's sort of the idea of social emotional learning, right? Which is different from what we're learning in classrooms, right? School is supposed to be something that's more than ABCs and one plus one equals two. Um, how do you help a student with that social um, emotional learning that they've maybe lost a little bit of that skill when they're trying to come back? Definitely, we are noticing that students have lost those, some of those social emotional skills just in relating with one another, how to um, engage with teachers and other adults on campus. So we're seeing it just in all different areas in the school. And so what we try to do is we try to engage classrooms and small groups and even large groups in terms of like targeting how to treat one another, how to be safe online, mm -hmm. um, how to function in school because the pandemic has definitely affected kids in terms of just general school processes. You know, just having, just coming to school every day, teaching the importance of being present every day. So it's an ongoing process. And um, at my particular school, I work at Highland High School. We have a theme every month and we try to um, always include a social emotional theme. This month is suicide prevention month, so we are doing that work this month, but we also try to talk about healthy relationships with students and how to be a partner to a friend or um, a romantic partner or just be a positive family member and student. So we're reteaching those basic behaviors that students used to have mm -hmm. by the time they reached ninth grade. So we're having to do some more teaching and definitely review with the whole student population really. How do yeah. the students respond to those themes? That sounds like I was a bit of a problem child in school. That would have been something that I might have thought like, oh goodness, I don't want to deal with that. How do they respond generally? You know, it's, it's surprising that teenagers are now talking more about mental health. Mm -hmm. And um, I think social media might, that might be a positive thing about social media because it's more apparent and it's out in the public now, all over social media. And I think students are aware of what it is. 
to not feel well. And we're trying to get the message across to students that it's okay to not be okay. And they're taking that in kind of nicely and in a relaxed fashion. And I have noticed that since the pandemic, students are learning, I mean, are listening more intently regarding mental health issues. And there's an acceptability yeah. around it. Yes. To say, I'm not okay, or mm -hmm. to have those conversations. I think that's really starting to be more apparent. Right. There's a lot less stigma, mm -hmm. I'm saying. And even, we used to have to almost beg students at the high school level to get into therapy because we do work with therapists on our campus. Many of our schools have mm -hmm. community mental health professionals who are counselors and therapists who um, students can see. And now students are actually asking for help which is nice, mm -hmm. and um, they're receiving it many t a lot of the time, so it's, it's positive. I feel like we yeah. think of vulnerability sometimes in this context as a, like an invitation for kids to get hurt, but the idea of vulnerability as being able to concede or admit or say without shame or stigma that I'm not okay, how do you see that with younger kids and how do you encourage that kind of vulnerability? So I think much is in the same way you do. I mean, we, I do classroom lessons, I do small groups, I work with students individually, but I do hear it, that the, the vulnerability isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I know that when students sometimes feel vulnerable in the moment, in the classroom, in front of their peers, that's when we see behaviors. So mm -hmm. I think making sure that we use the language continue to make it acceptable mm -hmm. and so that they have the tools to speak up and say I'm not doing okay or I need help today that that's okay for them to say and they don't feel shamed or bothered by it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the theme at Highland for this month is Suicide Prevention Month. We can't have this conversation without talking about violence in schools. Uh, when I was a student uh, in elementary school and high school it would have been incredibly rare, almost unimaginable, to think about a student bringing a gun to school, let alone using it on his classmates or teachers. Mm -hmm. That is a reality, um, unfortunately, that we are faced with all the time and we have seen in our schools mm -hmm. here. How, as a school counselor, do you work through that kind of reality with somebody who comes to you and wants to talk to you about it? So first, we just always listen to each student with their concerns, and we definitely f know that they are dealing with that fear. It's just like this generalized fear that students are carrying with them, and it's even evident by like little twitches they have. Some, some students have a hard time just sitting still, and their, their, their leg is always shaking, or they're needing to have some kind of stimulation. And then we just sort of like maybe dig a little deeper with students and try to get to the bottom of that fear. And oftentimes, they are, they, they are afraid, you know, of, of the violence that's happening in the community and at school because we never know what's going to happen, right? And we hear about school shootings all the time and there are more guns out there and, um, that are readily available and students know what's going on. They really do, especially at the high school level. So there is that low level of fear that's just constantly present, but we try to process it with each student that needs to talk about it. And really, they all need to talk about it because they're all dealing with it on some level. It's a horrible thing to have to yeah. adapt to. I, I can't is. imagine what that must be like. Um, and I, I, I would imagine you don't deal with that quite as much with younger kids, but surely they're aware of some of what's going on too. And they are, and then different students have different levels of access to the news and what their mm -hmm. families talk about. And I think I notice it more when we do drills or fire drills, or if something unexpected happens, you do, you feel an, an uptick 
of the nervous energy in the room of is this something serious or is everything okay but I think that's why we practice it that's why we unfortunately have to so that we can do those things smoothly but they definitely hear it they deal with it um, and there are times when it's overwhelming for them and that's when we listen we process it with them and we try to make them realize help them realize that it they're safe that we, they've got lots of adults around them who care and will do their best to keep them safe so unfortunately not many kids watch our show but a lot of their parents and in some cases grandparents do watch our show so what about the kid who is doing the best they can in school but has some of those outside stressors at home, whether it's a family member who's dealing with a behavioral health issue, um, a substance use disorder, um, homelessness. I recently read a story uh, in the journal about the large number of homeless students in APS. How can all adults, not just parents, but all of us, um, listen better to kids and find ways to meet them where they are? I think the key is being open to listening and hearing them where they're at. Um, depending on how old they are, the language might be different, but making those times to sit with them, to really listen to them, to ask questions, and be prepared to hear what they have to say. Um, it really does take everyone being on board and being willing, a grandparent, a parent, um, reaching out to the people in their students' lives, the counselors, the teacher, to say, hey, this is happening. Can we get some support from the school? Can we get some support from the school counselor? Because we hear what we can hear, but we rely on uh, the adults in their lives reaching out so that we can bridge through home and school and be the best support we can. Brian, are there other strategies for those of us who are not school-age kids anymore to be there for kids and to help them kind of get through these really challenging times? Well, I think I'm just going to piggyback off Devin, and what she said is just right on. Just be available to hear what students are saying. And it's okay to ask the rough questions. Mm -hmm. It's okay to ask the deep, deep questions too, like, are you doing okay mentally? Are you doing okay emotionally? Are you having thoughts of hurting yourself or others? Those are difficult questions to ask, but studies have shown that just by asking those questions, those questions can prevent many tragedies. So um, I would encourage people just to ask the deep questions if you're concerned or worried. And even if you're not concerned about a student, um, kids and teens can really cover up mm -hmm. their mental health issues. So it's good to dig a little deep, deeper and ask the question a couple times, not just once. Because okay. oftentimes their, their common response is, I'm doing good, I'm, I'm fine. Are you really fine? Because I'm not, I'm not feeling that you're fine. So it's okay to dig a little deeper. To follow up question. And try not, try not to be too judgmental, like yeah. Devin said. Yeah. Just be ready to be open and affirming to what students are bringing to you. Because it's a different age, and we're all progressing and growing, but they are dealing with just many, many deep issues. And perhaps even like piggybacking off of what they're watching, what they're seeing, and, and use that as an opportunity. Like, oh, that character's going through that. Have you ever dealt with that? Or do you have friends that are going through this? Just to use it as an opener for the bigger conversation and, and let them be comfortable to answer. I feel like this has been a conversation filled with difficult questions. I would love to end on a note of hope and optimism. Um, without obviously uh, revealing any personal identifiers or a specific kid, 
Devin, can you think of some stories or themes and resilience that you've seen from the students that you've worked with over the course of these really challenging past couple of years? Well, you, as you ask that question, I find myself smiling because I, mm -hmm. I do have hope. Um, I care so deeply for my students and I see little successes every day. I, I don't think I could say one specific one just because I am at a small school, but I see little successes in students asking to go to a calming center instead of running out of the room or instead of ripping up paper. I see that as success that we can build on, that they're learning to regulate their behavior so that they can be present to make up any academic deficits or social def deficits. But um, I, I am very hopeful. I think our educators, our teachers are working tirelessly and we, in our school, we see academic gains just this last year, which is positive and wonderful. And I see social, emotional growth. Um, so I think, like I said in the beginning, they will be okay if we all work together and we really put this time and effort into it as we have been. We just need to continue doing it. Brian, what are the kids at Highland doing to be okay? What, what are some of the cool things that you've seen in the face of all of this? Well, at Highland, we're really proud because our graduation rate has been increasing over the past five to seven years, which is really good. And um, we're just seeing a lot of resilience in our area, um, being that we're in the international district, there's a lot that happens in the international district. And our, not, not all of it is negative, but some of it is. And our kids are just showing just a tremendous amount of resilience just by making it to school yes. and graduating in four years. Not all graduate in four years, but we try to encourage students just it's important to graduate. If it takes five, that's fine. So we work with students who are not on track, but many of our students are getting back on track and they're doing the hard work of taking extra classes in the evening and in the summer and making it to graduation. Mm -hmm. So it's not all of them, but a large majority of them are. And so we're happy about that. Brian, Devin, thanks for coming and thanks for ending with the hope. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the podcast this week. Be sure to follow our pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week. You can give us feedback or just stay up to date as we post previews and news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.